From Share Profits, coming to you from Wales by 30 Yards, this is the Share Profits Radio Show, Episode 7, for Thursday, August 29th, 2019. And here's your host, Tom Winifred. Hello, it is indeed Tom Winifred coming to you from Wales, albeit only by 30 yards with this the seventh edition of Share Profits Radio. It's been a bit of a triumph uh, this week uh, for Share Profits, the website I edit, uh, with the publication on the 29th of August of a letter we received from the Financial Reporting Council. The Financial Reporting Council is my favourite of the regulators as they actually appear to do something when you complain to them about the accounts of quoted companies. Uh, My most enjoyable interaction with them uh, was over the accounts of that great British fraud, Quindell, a company I'm sure that will be discussed here uh, many, many times over the coming weeks and months as the SFO inquiry reaches its its inevitable conclusion with, I believe, the charging of Rob Terry, uh, the king of the fraudsters, uh, for uh, this multi-billion pound fraud. Uh, Back to the FRC. Uh, I launched, I sent a letter to the FRC about Quindell, uh, complaining about its accounts in 2012 and 2013. As a result of that, the Financial Reporting Council widened its investigation into Quindell. It had only been uh, reviewing the accounts for 2014 and 2015, uh, but it then extended the inquiry uh, to cover the earlier years of this company as a quoted entity and found wholesale fraud. Uh, It found that profits were completely and utterly fictitious. Not completely utterly fictitious, but largely fictitious, and the result of accounting fraud, uh, for which it slammed the company and also uh, its pathetic firm of auditors, and then publicly thanked me for bringing this matter to its attention. I've interacted with the FRC on a number of other companies, uh, uh, forcing them to change the way that they prepare their accounts, uh, including... Uh, Avanti Communications, uh, now shortly to delist from AIM, uh, because eventually uh, companies that resort to accounting jiggery pokery uh, tend to run out of other people's cash, uh, and more recently, First Derivatives, where again, the FRC thanked me for bringing matters to its attention, which forced the company to restate its accounts, although not as extensively as I would have wished. Uh, The latest triumph uh, concerns Burford, Uh, If you go to Share Profits, you will see the letter the FRC sent me, uh, which thanks me for my complaints uh, about Burford and about its 2013 accounts. Uh, The FRC is unable to investigate uh, Burford, as Burford is a Channel Islands company, and I have to send some letter off to the Bailiwick of Guernsey or someone like that uh, if they are to investigate his accounts. However, the FRC thanked me for what I sent them and said that it passed the information on to the FCA, which is now looking at the matter, and indeed the relevant committee of the FRC is looking at the auditors as a result of my complaint. I'm delighted to be helpful and a good, upstanding citizen. Burford has been the subject of some controversy, and we'll talk about the company in more detail uh, with my first guest 
on Share Profits Radio this week. Uh, but this uh, letter from the FRC brings uh, 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 some of the controversy to a natural conclusion. There have been folks, uh, notably Roger Lawson of ShareSock and indeed Burford themselves, <coughs> who have complained that the bear dossier by Muddy Waters was totally unfair. Muddy Waters should have run it past the company first. Uh, which, of course, then I suspect would have taken legal action to try and gag it. It would have delayed the process. In the case of Mr Lawson, uh, he proposed numerous measures which would effectively have stopped the publication of the dossier. It would also have stopped the publication of some of my articles about Burford. We now see uh, that Burford is being looked at by the FCA and its auditors by the FRC. Maybe I'll get around to contacting uh, those tax dodgers in the Channel Islands and, and see what they have to say about it too. That is surely a good thing. I make no uh, definite claims about whether Burford has cooked its books or not. That is not for me to decide. It is for other people to decide, and eventually it will be for the market to decide. Uh, my own views on Burford should uh, become clear in the interview that follows uh, with my first guest. Uh, but in due course, the truth will now emerge. The fact that two sets of regulators are looking at this is surely a good thing. If you are a bull of Burford, you would like these matters to be examined and detailed. It is not enough for the company to say, oh, we're looking at our procedures, we're looking at what we do, we don't think there's anything wrong, uh, we'll pay special attention. That is not enough. Uh, our auditors have looked at this in great detail. Well, the auditors of Quindell looked at things in great detail. The auditors of Enron looked at things in great detail. What does that mean? Uh, as Sam Antar uh, said uh, uh, on this show two or three editions ago, and your report is a marketing document. Uh, and auditors, uh, 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 the relationship between the company and the auditor is one of uh, uh, service provider and client. This is the same relationship between uh, a prostitute uh, and, uh, and a Tom. Uh, the client pays the money and it expects a certain result. If a company, uh, and I'm not saying that Burford is in this category, but if a company like Quindell is determined to commit wholesale fraud, uh, it pays the auditors. And if you're good enough at fraud, you will get away with it for a while. Uh, Sam of course, got away with it for years, for decades, because he was very good at fraud. Uh, my point is here uh, that we don't know whether Burford's uh, books were cooked or not. Again, I have my views, uh, as does my first guest. Uh, but it is in the interest of everybody that we get to the truth. And it is only as a result of the activities of Mr. Uh, of Mr. Carson Block, of Muddy Waters, and of myself here, quite directly, uh, that these matters are now being examined and they are being scrutinised. It could be that Burford emerges from this regulatory uh, scrutiny with a clean bill of health. Uh, and if so, then investors can buy the shares uh, with some feeling of security and they can hopefully make money and the company may go on to greater things. Or it could be that the regulators find that certain things are not as they should have been. In which case, uh, that will be brought out into the public domain. Uh, the shares would then be severely derated. 
And that is probably a good thing too. If companies uh, which are not doing right things see their shares derated, then that stops directors selling at inflated valuations. You you will note the directors of Burfords have been heavy net sellers of the shares over the years. And it will stop the company being able to raise uh, fresh equity at the wrong price. It will stop capital misallocation. It will stop the pension funds, which hold your pension, my pension, uh, investing in shares at the wrong price. That is surely a good thing. Those pension funds could invest in good companies instead at the right price. That is a good thing, uh, both for your pension fund and my pension fund, but also for the economy, because it is a good thing if money is pushed towards good companies uh, rather than the DeLoreans or the Quindells or the Globos uh, of this world. That is good for all concerned. Real jobs would be created. Real companies would pay real taxes. That's a good thing for everybody. And that is why uh, folks should really welcome the scrutiny that people like Muddy Waters, uh, uh, Carson Block of Muddy Waters, and myself, and my first guest, bring to this matter. Yet there is innate hostility. Uh, People find it distasteful that folks profit from shares going down. Well, uh, I'm motivated because I'm a journalist. People subscribe to share profits in order uh, to be warned of frauds or overpromotes, and so they can invest more wisely. They can avoid making silly mistakes and losing money on daft companies. So I make my money that way. But most people who expose bad companies or overpromotes or accounting irregularities uh, do so because they are short of the stock. They are motivated by greed. One shouldn't say that that makes what they do do bad. Clearly, it doesn't make them saint. They are out to make money. But it is a good thing that companies are exposed. It is only because of the recent kerfuffle that the regulators are now scrutinising Burford as needs to happen. Had it not been for the recent kerfuffle, there would have been no such scrutiny. And in whose interest would that have been? No one. Absolutely no one. Uh, If the bears are wrong, and if Burford is a great company, then perhaps people should fill their boots. Uh, Those who really detest the bears may wish to do so out of spite. I would suggest that's probably a risky thing to do right now, whilst the jury is still out. But uh, if it turns out the company has done nothing wrong, then there will be a chance of people to buy shares more cheaply than they would have done otherwise. And that is a good thing for them too. The market needs more scrutiny. Those who, like Roger Lawson, uh, want to clamp down on a free press uh, and prevent us doing what we do, uh, I'm afraid, uh, would make London a better place to commit fraud, but a worse place to invest. Uh, Most podcasts uh, of this nature are brought to you by companies paying to appear. Uh, Companies whose CEOs we interview here don't pay a cent. Not a bean. Uh, I interview them because (coughs) I find their company interesting or the CEO interesting uh, or both. There'll be a CEO and you later. Uh, This podcast is completely free. I hope you enjoy it. I hope you recommend it to your friends. I hope you uh, all have gone on to iTunes uh, to get an automatic download so it's sent direct to your phone when it appears each week. Uh, This broadcast is only possible thanks to this kind sponsorship of people who believe in free speech and like the entertainment and the educational value of this podcast. Today's podcast is sponsored by Turner Pope, who are a firm of stockbrokers. I've known uh, the chaps behind Turner Pope, Ben and James, uh, for an awfully long time, and they're a bit rough rough at the uh, the edges, uh, 
geezers. But uh, they're nice guys. And uh, uh, amongst the more honest folks in the stockbroking community, uh, you may say a low bar, but I believe that they are genuinely honest people. Uh, they provide a pro uh, service only for professional clients. If you don't know what a professional investor is, I suspect you're not one. Uh, so if you're not a professional investor, they can't help you. But if you are deemed to be a professional investor, uh, they provide a discretionary service uh, and various other services. They have a range of corporate clients. Some are complete dogs. Uh, some of them are actually quite interesting. If you got involved in a couple of their Union Jack oil placings, uh, last year, uh, you'd have trebled your money. Some of their placings are worth uh, getting involved in. Uh, I think I got involved in an optibiotics placing uh, thanks to them a little while ago <coughs> or a couple of years ago. So uh, not all their placings are good, but some are great. Some are very interesting. Uh, and so it's always worth having the opportunity uh, I think events at SVS Securities and Beaufort have shown the folly of holding all of your funds with a broker. You should share your funds around. I have a couple of brokers, and everybody should have at least two or three, I would have thought, uh, not only to minimise your risk, but also to give you uh, uh, access to different placings. If you are interested in what Turner Pope has to provide, uh, drop them an email at info at turnerpope.com, and please uh, do mention where you heard about these services on Share Profits Radio. Right. Uh, and now for something a little bit different. Well, my first guest is Matt Earl, a man known as the Dark Destroyer. Anyone who's met Matt would uh, think that's a bit of an odd nickname uh, because he is actually completely bond, blonde or, or bald or, or both. Uh, but it seems to have stuck. I really should be charging five quid for every time he's referred to as the Dark Destroyer because I came up with that nickname. The point about destroying uh, is that bears like Matthew, who runs the Shadow Fall outfit, uh, bears like Matthew are often uh, blamed by people for destroying great British companies or great Irish or European companies. Uh, Matt, do you destroy any good companies? Um, no, we, we I mainly look at companies that we think of either using aggressive accounting or there's relatively unethical conduct by management or that the business models are flawed. Um, you haven't used the word fraud there. No, we never, we try not to use the big F, um, <laughs> for, for any lawyers that might be listening to this podcast at any one moment in time, um, you know, aggressive accounting, I guess, is sometimes just purely aggressive accounting. Sometimes that is perhaps a polite uh, term for fraud. Um, but we're, we're, we're pretty loath to actually use uh, the big F word in any, any of the research that we write. If uh, a company is engaged in aggressive accounting and on the back of its bogus earnings, uh, it uh, either the management sell a large number of shares uh, or the company issue shares to raise fresh equity. Surely that is, uh, you may not want to use the Norfolk word, uh, but it is fraud. Um, yeah, I mean, it's certainly unethical. And I guess that if they're inflating the, 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 the profits of the company um, through what would be perceived to be aggressive accounting, and then they're reaping the benefits from that, from the valuation of the company and selling their stock, then I think that 
people should take a rather dim view of that. The only issue is, I mean, it, 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 too often when this does happen, and it does happen, um, the, the the management seem to get away with it. Um, I mean, we we seem to take a very light touch approach to going after uh, bad management in this country with listed companies. Um, and I'm, I'm not entirely sure why that is, but one would only think that it further encourages them to, to continue to act in that manner. What uh, what do you think should be done to uh, managers who do, well, let's go inflate earnings and benefit personally, either through bonuses, share sales, being able to issue equity to pay their bloated salaries, whatever. What should be done to managers who do that? Well, I think they should be more accountable. I mean, the, I think that actually what we should be doing is is probably going down the line of the US route, which is much more aggressive towards management of companies, um, white collar crime, especially with uh, listed companies. You know, the SEC do have some significant teeth and they will not only fine uh, the companies themselves, but will also go after the, the orchestrators of, of what might be a fraud or um, aggressive accounting techniques, and both in monetary terms and also um, in, in terms of potential jail time. Um, unfortunately, with regards to um, kind of regulatory oversight that we have in the UK with the FCA, they don't. It, there's there's a disconnect between, I think, what their uh, remit is and um, with what the SEC uh, is in, is able to, to achieve. Um, you know, the FCA doesn't really prosecute anyone, as far as I'm aware. They, they then, if there is any prosecution to, to, to follow, then it's passed on to the SFO, who don't seem to be um, particularly capable these days. Indeed. It, it, just the idea of fining a company, though, I've always thought that was particularly unfair because uh, the company is owned by the shareholders. <laughs> And they've suffered enough if it's been shown that the management have been cooking the books. Uh, companies don't commit fraud. Companies don't uh, aggressively account. It's individuals. They're the ones who should be uh, sent to prison, surely. Yeah, well, no, very much so. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I do agree with that. You know, the company, the companies don't commit fraud. It's the individuals behind it. Um, which is why I think that there does need to be, uh, there do need to be fines implemented against management or that they are unable to basically uh, uh, be present within public markets ever again. Um, but again, you know, seemingly too often they, they seem to have a number of lives and, and uh, the market's willing to forgive and forget. And then you know, several years later, such as someone like Rob Terry, um, they return to the market and, uh, and go about their merry way. Well, that, Rob Terry, people forget, Quindell was his fourth fraud, and I'm using the word, not you, and I, I feel pretty safe in accusing Rob Terry of fraud, um, but it was actually his fourth fraud. And what, what, what amazes me is the fact that uh, Daniel, well, not Daniel Stewart because they were morally bankrupt, but Daniel Stewart, but then Senkos and Canaccord were prepared to act for a, a man who was a proven fraudster. Yeah, precisely. I mean, the problem is, is that there's, again, how things are set up, there's a, a kind of passing the buck attitude to a lot of all this in that where 
um, the, 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 the the nomads on on with regards to the aim market, they will say we only rely on the information that's provided to us by management or the law firms in terms of checking contracts and, and whatever. The accountants will say we're only, or the auditors will say we're only reliant on um, what the, the figures that management provide us, and we're we're basically there to ensure that they add up. They are meant to exercise professional scepticism. They're not there to identify fraud. And professional scepticism is a relatively subject approach, one would think, to take, um, because you, how much scepticism are they actually exercising and how does that interfere with what is a clear conflict of interest with, with due to the fact that they are paid directly by the company. Um, in, the, in the case of Quindell, I mean, let's deal, dealing with the nomads first. Uh, mm. Surely there should be a, 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 a sanction against a nomad. It's all very well saying you believe everything that Rob Terry tells you. But given that he's a proven fraudster before you took him on, uh, surely, this, and actually in the case of uh, Quindell, Canaccord and, and, and Senkos, the nomad, was shown evidence that he was committing fraud at Quindell by myself, and they did nothing about it. When the thing blows up, surely there should be some sanction against them for their uh, willingness to act for someone who is a proven rotter. Yeah, very much so. I mean, I think that there was actually, I, I, as I recall, Senkos were fine, but it was a fairly paltry fine. I mean, it was it was more like a you know, almost. It a was seven hundred thousand quid, and I think reduced for early payment and cooperation, <laughs> which, frankly, in the scale of Senkos, is not going to make much of a dent in the Coke and Hooker's budget, is it? No, I doubt that. The um, no, very much so. I mean, you know, the, this is my point, is that I think that we need to be, become much more serious about implementing fines across, significant fines across the board, whether it's to management behind the companies that, uh, that instruct the companies to, to account for the way they do or to, to behave the way that they do, and indeed the enablers of companies. There's been a little bit of, um, I guess, uh, evidence of that in the audit market over recent years. The, the FRC, the Financial Reporting Council, seem to be uh, implement or have been implementing some significant fines. I don't quite think they're big enough because, again, um, they're not uh, you know, five million for, for, for the, ultimately five million for the uh, the, the fine for the. Uh, signing off the books for Connaught you know, doesn't really touch the sides in terms of the amount of money that these audit firms are making. Um, but at least they it, are. And it's they also, they, they do levy fines against partners, but again, they the do, fines yeah. aren't. Uh, if you're a partner at KPMG, you're probably trousering 200, 250,000 a year. Uh, and you've been doing so for many, many years, and you'll carry on doing so for many, many years. So when these chumps are fined 100 grand, reduced to 70 for good for cooperating, you know, 70 grand fine, it would hurt me and it would hurt you materially. Um, yeah. And for these guys, actually, no, it, 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 they can afford to do it because they'll get it back in three months' paycheck. Yeah, very it's much. Well so. enough. I mean, yeah, I mean, very much. So. I, I think there was it was in the press the other day about the um, the, the 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 payments to the partners for I forget whether it was Deloitte or KPMG, but it was whoever was auditing Serco at the time. 
um, when it had been uh, effectively falsifying its accounts. And the it, it's literally a drop in the ocean in terms of, of what they're implementing on these fines against the partners and indeed the firms, um, which is why I think you know, we do need to get a bit more serious about this, both in terms of fines and potential jail time. In terms of uh, uh, Quindell, I mean, going back to their, their audit, uh, the idea of professional scepticism, Quindell's accrual of profits from industrial hearing cases was assuming that it had a 250% market share. Surely, <laughs> I, I was a bit sceptical about that. You were a bit sceptical about that. Why the hell wasn't the auditors a bit sceptical about that? Yeah, I know. I mean, the, I, I remember going along to the, the AGM. Uh, I think it was the, the, the either the penultimate AGM or the final AGM uh, that Quindell had, which was after Gotham, the, the Gotham hit job and, and yourself started highlighting. Yeah, it was the, the one they didn't let me into, but you got in. That's, that's right, yes. Going I once know. again, poor judgment <laughs> on the part of Quindell management. <laughs> it was it was one of the biggest, well, I think probably the biggest turnout for an AGM in, in UK listed history. Um, there were literally people lining the walls. The, I mean, I managed Gosh, to I got some in. dirty looks that day from the Quindell <laughs> shareholders. <laughs> <laughs> the... Um, I remember attending the AGM and asking a question, and I broke down the mathematics to Rob Terry, uh, who looked at death's door, I have to say, um, to Rob Terry about just the, the, the sheer absurdity as to how many, what, what their implications would mean for the, um, the hearing loss claims. And I literally broke down the mathematics of it quite simply. And he said, well, I question your mathematics. Well, how can you question that? I've just literally told you how I've arrived at that. And, and it's quite easy to understand. But um, you will remember one of, that, one of Rob's uh, associates saying, Rob is a two plus two can equal five sort of guy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was a very, it was a very strange um, Strange AGM. There was, I think, forty percent of the crowd were had great animosity towards him, and the others, about ten percent, just didn't know quite what to think. And then the other fifty were were um, effectively his cheerleaders and biggest long and strong at the time. Yeah. <laughs> okay, um, Quindell, we'll come back to that when we talk about Burford a little bit later. Um, just going back to uh, Quindell as a case study. You were short of it. I obviously attacked it. We were at the time accused of destroying a great British company. The reality is if you put out a dossier on uh, a company like Quindell or if you attack it, uh, you may hasten its demise. But ultimately, Quindell, which I think we can agree was a fraud, um, <laughs> it, it would eventually have run out of other people's money, wouldn't it? It would have been, it would have demised, uh, uh, and in fact, Barclays yeah. and Gordon, it would have done. Yeah, I mean, very much so. You know, companies, whether they're flawed business models or whether they're they're up to, to no good, um, ultimately... The, Come on, Matt, the with Quindell, we can use the word fraud. Yeah, with their fraud. Ultimately, the, the, the thing that brings their demise is a failure to continue to receive credit, basically, um, because effectively, whether fraud frauds or flawed business models, they run out of other people's money. Um, 
So, yeah, I mean, the problem is, I mean, when we highlight some of this stuff, we don't expect there to be any market reaction because you never you never can expect that. Um, I've seen plenty of very good short reports where I think that, crikey, people should recoil in horror at how bad this company is. And the market says, hmm, so what? Um, in fact, is, that, is that not just the fact that we've been in, in an eight year bull market and right now you and I can highlight something? Uh, but the uh, the sell side analysts will say, oh, you know, it's irrelevant. Just look at the earnings growth. Why is this man blathering on about cash? Look at the earnings growth. Earnings are growing by 20% a year. And in a bull market, people buy that shit. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, 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 it's pretty complex. You know, I think it's, it's partly to do with the bull market. I think it's sometimes idiosyncratic to the stocks themselves. Um, you do get some... Companies where the shareholder base, particularly if it's retail, is they're absolutely fanatical about it. They're kind of like um, a Taliban unit for uh, for a particular company. Uh, it's just uh, amazing. I know, I know you don't look at it, but um, uh, my mind at the moment is drawn to Vasarian in this respect. <laughs> Probably, yeah. I mean, it does it does tend to happen with with the, the fanaticism does seem to have. A particular prevalence to um, aim-listed companies that are, are the, have quite aggressive management, promotional management, um, and that are not generating any cash. Not generating cash, very much jam tomorrow type companies. We've seen it over the years with so many companies. Pursuit Dynamics. Uh, yes. I mean, Quindell, <laughs> but. Uh, 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 these ones also uh, 3DM going back to that uh, great fraud um, uh, it is it, uh, a classic pattern of jam tomorrow no cash generation and absolutely fanatical shareholder base yeah very much so. I mean again pursuit dynamics I remember going along to the that AGM I think it was at the AA uh, no the RAC not the AA the RAC club um got into the AGM there. This was on the morning when I think at the time it was around a 700 million market cap company. Not massive, but pretty big when they announced that morning that they'd achieved around £100,000 in revenue. Um, <laughs> and the, the faces of everyone in the, in the audience uh, was, was quite a sight. <laughs> Yeah, I was another, of course, another golden rule of the small cap world. Any stock which Mike Walters says is, is a storming buy 58 times a week is also a sell. Um, <coughs> going back to one which we both uh, got right. Me, I was a convert. You were always right. Um, Avanti Communications. <laughs> At his peak, the shares were eight quid uh, with the uh, bombastic prick of a CEO, David Williams, uh, telling everyone uh, uh, who would listen, the shares were going to 20 quid, uh, yes. sending out broker notes saying the prior the shares should be 30 quid and promptly selling millions of quid of his own shares. Uh, today, they're half a P and the shares are about to be booted off aim. Apart from the uh, actions of Mr. Williams uh, in selling the shares and ramping them ruthlessly, were there any other warning signs for Avanti? Uh, and on a checklist of red flags, which anyone can follow, uh, the warning signs. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean there, there were huge amounts. I mean, first and foremost, it was the, 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 
as you mentioned, the overly promotional manner of management. You know, he was a, a, an incredible ramper of the stock. I think also partly the looking at the, the quality of the research behind it. I mean, the price targets were ridiculous. He said £8 a share. And yet, you, I think it was Daniel Stewart pumping out buy recommendations with a, a target price of 20 quid or more. Um, as it happens, the the analyst at Daniel Stewart, I forget his name, but he went, he ended up being, I think, becoming IR or CFO to Avanti. Um, I mean, the, the accounts were, were pretty screwy because it looked like they, they never met their targets. They kept announcing these very lofty targets and then never meeting them. Meanwhile, the debt continued to balloon. Um, at one point in time, it looked like they were, were, were doing clear uh, vendor financing where they had extended credit to a customer on the looked like the quid pro quo that the customer would then buy um, uh, bandwidth off them. Uh, they kept changing their business model as well. I mean, I remember that initially, I think it was set up to target um, internet pr provision through satellite to rural areas of, of the UK. Then when it became apparent that there was no real interest from rural areas of the UK for satellite in internet, um, it then moved to Eastern Europe then it was sub-Saharan Africa. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there were, there were, there were plenty of, of warning signs. The problem was, was that along the, the way, you being shorted, you had to sustain some fairly nasty short squeezes. Um, the biggest and the worst one was when it was a, effectively a triple whammy, I think it was, where they there was some spurious bid speculation put out into the market that Facebook were interested in <laughs> buying it. <laughs> I guess to give every African um, uh, access to, to Facebook at the time. Um, that uh, the, 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 the stock on loan was pulled so that um, the, the cost of borrow went from about 8% to, I think it was something like 80%, which is very expensive. And the uh, again, I think they they had a general puff up of the targets um, for the, the 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 forecast for the full year. When the stock of the uh, uh, borrow was pulled, do you believe that the company was behind that? The company is brokers. Well, possibly, yeah. I mean, it, it, ultimately, it's going to be down to the the, the, the main shareholders um, because they're the ones that extend the or allow the shares to be lent um but i would imagine that there was probably some orchestration in, behind the scenes to uh because it, also because of the fact that this all happened pretty much simultaneously at the, the same time with um the facebook spurious bid the um the the, the increase in the targets and the, the stock being borrowed so yeah do you, I mean, you've worked in the city, um, uh, not as a sort of rogue uh, uh, bear raider, but as a sort of respectable analyst or semi-respectable. Um, uh, so you must know, actually, the brokers will have had words with the institutions and they do have leverage to say, look, do us a favour. Yeah, I expect so. I mean, look, ultimately, the, 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 the reality of the situation was, was that the stock was pulled or the borrow was pulled. Um and for it whatever was painful. reason, so, so, yeah, someone decided to, to 
request that to be done. I hold a request for that to be done. It didn't look, I don't think at the time it looked like there was a lot, any large holders that had sold down. So yeah, it looked like it was a bit of a, an orchestrated event. I think that for Avanti, for me, the, 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 the massive red flag, any company that can do a transaction which involves it paying out $14 million, but can book that as a, uh, a sale on a 100% margin of $25 million, uh, which was very material to its bogus EBITDA, uh, that surely sends an alarm bell. Yeah, no, very much so. They, they did some sort of strange deal as well with, was that the one with the, I think it was the, the French company? Yeah. Yeah. yeah the, 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 according to the French company, um, they, they'd sold something to Avanti, whereas according to Avanti, they'd sold something to the, <laughs> vice versa. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was very peculiar. I mean, the other thing, of course, was that whilst all this was going on and people are nitpicking over the accounts and um, whether they're aggressive or not and, and, and the valuation... Meanwhile, the the satellites are floating around in space. No one's really using them, and they're burning fuel. Um, and so you've got that decay element going on, which uh, which is, is you, know, you, you can't fight against that, basically. And I the suppose other the other thing is just in classic Buffett terms, uh, a good business is not one which has huge upfront capex uh, and then no moat around its uh, forward earnings going forward. What you want is yeah. low upfront capex and real visibility of revenues. Avanti was the reverse. Yeah, I mean, yeah, very much. So. And the other thing was that they kept, <laughs> despite the fact they already had one or two or three satellites up there that no one was using or they had very little utilisation out of, they kept deciding to, to launch even more up there. I mean, <laughs> one would have thought that you'd, you'd wait to fill up the existing ones before you keep firing others up into space. Anyhow, that's a, a, a pleasure before business. Now, to current uh, uh, stocks out there, let's start with IQE because we've got results next week, haven't we? Yes. Um, it's the September half the year, 3rd. Yeah, the half-year results. Um, it's the, I think it's year-end, yeah, so it's year-end is what, uh, March. Um, the... I, mean, I think the market's probably in for a nasty surprise here. There's, there's several things. One is that it... When was it? About six, eight weeks ago, they had a profit warning where originally consensus had, I think, revenue forecast of 175 million. They then guided to a range of 140 to 160. For some reason, when I looked on Bloomberg just earlier, um, consensus is forecasting 156. So pretty much at the top of the range of that new guidance. Um, the other thing... And what, but the, what, one thing that the profits warning was they said uh, that the first half's been shit, but we're hopeful the second half will be a lot better. Uh, the only caveat is they said the same thing last year and it wasn't. And it was yeah, at this stage yeah, that yeah. they warned that it wasn't going to be much better. And everything we read about uh, uh, the world of, uh, uh, of IQE, the macro picture, is things are not getting better in the slightest. They're getting worse. Yeah, no, very much so. Um I mean, well, this is the this is the point in that if you look at their full year uh, uh, revenue, the, so firstly they had two things. They said I think they guided towards first half revenues of sixty three to sixty eight million or sixty five million. 
Um, their full-year revenue, 140 to 160. Consensus reckons that it's going to be um, 156. What it's basically implying is that revenues year on year are going to be down somewhere between 5 to 10% year on year in the first half, but then pick up by about somewhere between 8 to 12% in the second half. I mean, I think in the context of where we are macroeconomically and indeed what others in the sector and the space have been saying currently, uh, there's no... the chances of them actually growing in the second half, especially at that rate, are between slim and none. I mean, it's just fanciful. So we're likely, in your view, there's a good chance that the company will have to warn on the full year outlook. Uh, one of the things about IQE is supporters of this stock, uh, uh, or historically at least, and I think of people like Thirsty Paul Scott, uh, 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 as well as all the lapdog paid brokers, Uh, claim that it's an exceptional technology stock uh, with a really differentiated product, yada, yada, yada. But it strikes me it's not. It's not an arm. This company is a CapEx-heavy producer of commodity products. Yeah, Yeah. very much so. I mean, basically, for a long time, whether it's down to them in the way that they've described their, their business to the market or whether the market's totally misunderstood it. Um, nonetheless, a large portion of them um, are almost a chip manufacturer. They're not. They make the fairly basic, what is a fairly commoditized product, um, a wafer that then is sold to the chip manufacturers. Um, so I, I don't quite understand why everyone thinks that there's some significant IP here. I mean, you only have to look at their, it's not like it's a software business or anything like that. You look at their gross margins, they're poultry. Um, the, the, just back on the, the, the statement that they put out a few months or so back, um, the other thing they guided towards was that their, their operating margin, their adjusted operating margin would be significantly below 10%. And yet, again, consensus has just cut it to 9.9%. I mean, my interpretation of significantly means certainly more than it's going to be 0.1% below um, 10%. And I think that they're, they're potentially looking at... Um, uh, they, they, I think ultimately what will, what will transpire is that they're not trading on 51 times earnings this year. They're actually trading on probably over 100 and but, but, with earn, but with IQE, well. sorry to, to butt in, yeah. earnings are one thing because profits are a matter of opinion. Uh, free cash generation uh, with a business which always has a very hefty capex bill, it just seems to be un- unable to avoid a very hefty capex bill. Free cash generation is nothing like reported earnings. No, very much so. I mean, this is the other thing which I think has been missed uh, by the market is that it wasn't that long ago that they raised 95, 96 million quid. Um, yep. That was what, November 2017? They seem to have burnt through all that fairly quickly. Um, the they I did note that, again, about a couple of weeks back, they changed Nomad and Broker, the more, more emphasis on the broker, um, from Canaccord to uh, Citigroup as the broker. 
Uh, I mean, that to me looks like a clear signal that they're getting their ducks in a row to probably do another equity raise. Um, the, the fact is, is that they will have burned through a fair amount of cash this year, um, not only because the profits are going to be much weaker than they expected, but also it is a capital intensive business and they are having to, to constantly spend money on CapEx. The, the reason for an equity raise is that, again, I think it's been missed. As of end of 2018, they had financing facilities, I think it was an RCF, of $63 million, uh, from HSBC. That was cut to $35 million, dollars that is, or roughly 28 million quid. So I think that their their bankers are going to be pretty reluctant to extend any further credit um, or even for them to start utilising uh, much more of that or a higher percentage of that facility. The, the company did say that it had uh, it would be operating within its banking facilities until the start of uh, 2020 at least, but that was based on uh, forecasts uh, before next week. If we get another yeah. profits warning... That would have to be very much in doubt, would it not? Yeah, very much so. Absolutely. I mean, ultimately, I think the company is going to have to raise probably north of 50 million. Um, as a final red flag, of course, uh, the CEO is taking out another equities first holdings um, uh, uh, um, disguised sale facility. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the circumstances of that look a bit iffy as well, in that um, it was. So he's lent, I think it's 11 million shares, and he received a value of about, I think it's 44 or 45 pence per share. So he roughly realized about 5.6 million pounds. The reason being for this, this loan was that, or given, was that um, it was so that he could settle his tax liability associated with exercising the options from April this year. Firstly, even with full whack um, income tax, I wouldn't have thought the tax liability on that would be anywhere near 5.6 million. I think it um, is because the, uh, the unapp- there are unapproved options at 1p, so he would have had to pay a tax bill of 45% of the difference mm-hmm. between 1p and the share price then, which was 70p. So 70p, he, how many options did he exit? I think it was like 7 million. I, I worked out that his tax bill was about 5 million quid. Really? Okay. If you know you're going to have a tax bill of 5 million quid coming in mm. July, uh, when you exercise the options, how the hell did he think he was going to fund that bill? Surely yeah. he must have known <laughs> then that he, was, he, he, he couldn't pay the tax. Yeah, very much so. Um, and the other it's thing crazy. Was, yeah, I mean, it, it does look as well that as though Equities First have uh, pre-sold these shares into the market as well, because shortly, uh, shortly before the, the the loan arrangement was entered into, you saw a, a fairly sizable uh, spike in the number of shares on loan, um, and indeed also what happened was they sent rent. Company released those fairly puffy statements, which I don't think were RNS statements. I think there was some like RNS reach, um, where they talked about how everything was going great and they they won new customers and 
the outlook was fantastic, which sent the shares up about 20% in one day. So equities first holdings may well have flogged the stock at uh, 70p or 80p, uh, yeah. given uh, uh, the CEO Drew Nelson 44p. And if there is a profits warning and a bailout placing, it could buy the stock back at 20p. Yeah, quite possibly. Or, yeah, exactly. <laughs> We're in the wrong business, Matt. <laughs> so it seems. <laughs> so IQE obviously won. Uh, are you short of us at the moment? Yes, actually, yeah, that's a good point, because my compliance officer will be bang on the door in a minute. Um, yes, we're short IQE at the moment, yeah. Okay, moving on to, to another one, which uh, we've both looked at. Let's uh, uh, move uh, across the Irish Sea. Um, are you short of first derivatives at the moment? No, not at the moment, annoyingly, because um, it's one that I keep meaning to put a short on, but unfortunately, the share price keeps going down. I keep... I, I'm... I think being a bit picky on this, ridiculously so, because ultimately I think fair value is probably lower than £10 a share. Um, and whatever they are at the moment, they're about 24 quid a share, I think. Um, so it's been a bit of a fr frustrating one. I mean, I'd, I'd certainly be looking to short it if it had a bounce. And maybe I should have a bit more courage in my convictions and, and, and put a short on now. But at the moment, no, not short it. What is the short uh, uh, the short attraction of first derivatives for you? Uh, well, fundamentally, I think that the, there's a misconception as to what the business does. Um, so the perception in the market is that this is a very much software-driven business, and as such, it it should command a, a higher rating that is commensurate with a software business. It's on about um, 30 times earnings, isn't it? Yeah, something like that. Yeah, I mean, the, the, um, the our view is that, from the research that we've done into the company, is that, uh, yes, there is some software element to the business. However, a large chunk of it, probably more than the market appreciates, is to do with staffing solutions um, literally throwing graduates' bodies at banks to do fairly menial data entry work. I mean, one of the, the, the biggest revelations that would support that view recently was, was the uh, litigation case that you highlighted, I think, last week, um, the fleeting litigation case, I would add, where it, there was a staffing provider brought a claim on the Monday and it was withdrawn by whenever it was the Friday, um, which suggested that... Without first derivatives bothering to uh, let investors know <laughs> that it could have been sued for $100 million. Yeah, exactly. I mean, what, yeah, what's $100 million? The, um, uh, Which suggested that there was significant revenues associated with providing staffing solution to, I think it was Citigroup in, in right. the US. Well, um, what percentage do you reckon, ballpark, give us a range... Of first derivatives profits come or revenues profits come from staffing. Uh, well, I think that I mean, what have they got? They've got um, PBT uh, of last year was around twenty twenty five million. Um, I suspect it's probably around. Uh, 10 million is, is from software and the rest is from staffing solutions. 
So you're talking about 60% being from staffing solutions, and typically a company in the staffing solutions space should be trading on maybe 10 times earnings. Yeah, very much so. I mean, it's an incredibly cyclical uh, market. Obviously, if they're, if they're, if as that litigation case um, suggested, a large chunk of the staffing rests with uh, staffing solutions to banks, then that's, again, incredibly cyclical. And uh, no wonder they've had a reasonable uh, journey in the last eight, nine years, because Employment's been fairly low. Oh, sorry, unemployment's been fairly low. Employment's been high. Um, but when the economies roll over, you do get into into trouble. And if that's as it looks as though it might be about to happen, that's why these companies do command much lower ratings vis a vis staffing companies, uh, software type companies. So if we say 60% is uh, uh, 60% of those earnings should be on a PE of 10 and 40% on a PE of 30, the, the implication is the shares should be at least uh, 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 devalued by a third. Yeah, at least. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. Is there there's also the thing with first derivatives, which I find rather difficult to get my head around. Is it also acts as a venture capitalist company investing in a whole load of tiddly little companies, mainly in uh, Ireland? Um, and it's not clear whether those companies uh, uh, buy any services off first derivatives. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, again, it's, it's this misunderstanding, I think, of what the, the company is doing. Um, either at best, it's a venture capitalist company, which do the investors understand that and that there's a large chunk of whatever cash it generates is going towards funding uh, providing uh, credit to these uh, startups, which are all looked to, to us to be loss-making, very low revenues, um, as you'd expect from a startup. Or so that's at best. Or at worst, it's it's fairly straightforward vendor financing in that you provide credit to a company similar to you know, what we were talking about Avanti earlier, um, in the on the quid pro quo that you receive demand for your services as a result um it does seem very odd i mean the, the it gets a little bit murky when uh why are why seemingly are i think 90 percent of these businesses that they're invented that they're investing in apparently all based in northern ireland um it's surely because we ask the folk a good entrepreneurial sort, sir. Uh, Matt, that's the truth. Yeah, probably. Yeah, I guess. So. <laughs> is, uh, we we mentioned Northern Ireland. The other thing which uh, uh, is odd, of course, is this company has used KPMG as its auditors for twenty years, and the Belfast office of KPMG uh, is not to speak badly of my fellow uh, Ulsterman, uh, is um, uh, notorious for corruption and scandal. Well, if you get to have an auditor for 20 years, which in itself is wrong, uh, you'd probably choose to have a different office, wouldn't you? Indeed. I mean, firstly, they, they still haven't rotated their auditor. I mean, this was one of the issues that we had with the company as well, was that the, long, the, the longevity of the auditor in place uh, probably warrants a rotation. Uh, it's over 20 years. The, 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 the facts of the matter are is that the offices were, I think the offices were raided either offices or the homes of the four senior partners of KPMG Belfast were raided. Ultimately, they weren't arrested, uh, I should add, but they were 
I think they were kind of bundled into the back of a, a van, police van, and taken off for questioning. Um, the four of the four senior partners that that were embroiled in this, one was the chairman of KPMG Belfast, another guy was the the guy that had signed off the accounts for first derivatives for I think at least the four years leading up to that, and another guy was is a guy that has ended up working for First Derivatives, seemingly in charge of overseeing uh, where they invest all their money in these venture capitalist projects. I'm sure there's absolutely nothing untoward about this whatsoever. Um, Of course, the other thing about First Derivatives we have to touch on is the sad death of its uh, founder, uh, Chief Plate Spinner uh, uh, and CEO Brian Conlon uh, uh, a few weeks ago. Um, he died young and, you know, commiserations mm. to his family and all that sort of thing. But uh, this does, I think, leave the company with a problem, doesn't it? Yes. Um, unfortunately, I mean, it was very sad. And uh, as you say, he was, he was incredibly young. Um, the, I think he does have a significant, or he did have a significant holding, um, obviously, his states now has that significant holding. There was a large chunk that had been sold just shortly prior to his passing, um, but there is a, a fair amount that's been left over. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the, when you've got, I mean, one of the things that attracts us to some of these businesses is where you've got uh, founder chief execs that have been there and are instrumental and have been there for a long period of time. The there's, I think I have two views on this. Either um, founder chief execs that have been there for a long tenure are fantastic, or they're not so great, and ultimately they've ended up surrounding themselves with a bunch of yes men, and they either the company kind of outgrows them, or um, they do. Be, there does become a bit of plate spinning involved. Um, there's, there doesn't tend to be any any kind of way down the middle. They're either great or they're not so great. The risk is, is that there was plate spinning going on and that without the chief's plate spinner there, then things start to unravel. Okay. Now, quick mention of another uh, 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 company from Ireland, although from the other side of the border, um, Kerry Group. It's a massive company, but you launched a, a dossier on that. Surely companies, which I think it was capitalised 18 billion euros, Surely companies that big never do anything naughty. Uh, well, they have done. I mean, there's been far bigger companies that have, have been found at fault than, than Kerry. The issues that we have with Kerry are, are, are several fold. One, I mean, first and foremost, again, the corporate governance, we find a, a, a bit as though that could be improved. Um, the... The last few years, there's been a big rotation of um, the board, particularly at the exec level, where within, I think, within a year or six months to a year, the chairman resigned, the chief exec departed, and the CFO left his post. Um, what was interesting was that the chair, the, the incoming chairman wasn't an external appointment. That was an internal appointment from a guy that was a, a non-exec for them that was chairing the audit committee. The, 
the CEO that was appointed was a life staff of the company. He joined the graduate program. The CFO is the really interesting appointment, as far as we're concerned, in that she was the former auditor, uh, well, worked for the former auditor of Kerry Group, and not only working for the auditor, but literally signing off their books, their accounts, uh, in that audit function for the at least the two years prior to, to joining Kerry. Um, now, the timing of this uh, looks to be carefully managed because, again, going with the Financial Reporting Council guidelines, the as an auditor to a company, you shouldn't join that company within two years of having had any involvement with that company. Now, technically, she didn't because um, I think that the last time she signed the accounts off was in uh, February 2016, and she didn't pitch up until September 2018. But the decision to appoint her was taken within that two-year window. So um, uh, they clearly had her in mind. Uh, Corporate governance is one thing. Is there anything Mm. wrong about its earnings numbers? Yeah, several things. I mean, firstly, it's it's an M&A machine, this company. I mean, it buys increasingly large acquisitions, uh, but it, it nonetheless, it, as far as we can tell, it mainly grows from from acquiring uh, businesses. When we firstly, despite being in such an M and A machine, it actually gives away very little information on what it's buying. So you're you're left to uh, your own devices to try to work out how this is impacted on the business. Where there is data available, um, whether it's through filings in Australia or, or uh, UK or um, anywhere else, what you find is that they don't look to be buying particularly great businesses. So this is why we're kind of scratching our heads in that the the businesses that they seem to be buying, they don't uh, appear to be particularly profitable. Um, now, one could argue that perhaps that's the beauty of it and that they're buying businesses that they can then extract significant synergies from um, and efficiencies because they're then part of a larger group. The thing that we would uh, counter with that would be that invariably they're buying these businesses off of private equity and you would have thought that private equity have, have probably removed a large chunk of the fat Involved within these businesses before flipping them on for a markup. Um, so quite what efficiencies there are to extract after that is, is unknown to us. Um, Kerry, this is Kerry as in Kerry Gold Butter, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's, there's two sides of the business. But isn't, one, it's, it's, it's a boring, it's going to be a boring sort of unexciting, making butter and, and cream and things like that. It's going to be food products. is always going to be sort of, you know, boring, not particularly high margin. Isn't that the nature of the beast? Yeah, pretty much so. I mean, there's actually, well, there's two sides of the business. There's uh, the, the kind of the boring consumer foods sides of the business, which is pretty stagnant, low margin, Quite cash generative, but not not particularly exciting. The the bit that people get really excited about is the ingredients and flavourings business, which is higher growth, um, higher margin, um, carries higher multiples. The the 
issue that we have there is that um, compared to peers, it doesn't look as though it it, it, it compares to peers that much. I, when you look at a company like Givaudan or International Flavors and Flavorings um, uh, or Simrise, for example, you, what you find is that these guys are, they have one, much higher margins, EBITDA margins, um, but for some unknown reason, they're trading at similar valuations to Kerry. Um, two, that they... Uh, they spend about twice as much as a percentage of sales on R&D versus Kerry. So quite how Kerry is competing in what our very competitive flavorings market is unknown to us. Um, but, but on the flip side, Kerry capitalizes apparently more cost as a percentage of their sales than the, than the peers. Um, Do you find that particularly suspicious? Yeah, I mean, obviously, if you're capitalising costs, then you're lumping it onto the balance sheet. You're taking out the, the P&L, lumping it onto the balance sheet and slowly releasing the costs associated with that um, through the P&L over several years after. Um, the other big, big anomaly uh, that really looks odd to us is the fact that year in, year out, since 2013, despite uh, what they report through their P&L in tax, Kerry pays about half as much on average in cash tax. Um, now, this is as it, every year since 2013. The um, uh, either they've found some sort of wonderful tax loophole that means that despite statutory tax uh, having gone through their PL, they only end up paying half of it in cash. Or the more cynical view would be that the cash tax is actually reflective of the amount of tax they should be paying, which would therefore suggest that the the profits are inflated. Um, Okay. Are you short of Kerry at the moment? Yes. Yeah. What's the share price? It's about 108 a share. I mean, I think we started shorting around 96, 97 um, euros a share. It's about 108 a share. So it's gone against you short term. Yeah. What do you see the share? What is your target, or do you not have a target? Um, I think that I mean, ultimately, if we, we do believe that the profits are uh, potentially inflated. Therefore, um, and by a factor of that, they the, the real profits may be half as much as they claim. Now, the rating is is pretty astronomical. I think probably fair value is 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 lower than about sixty euros a share. Um, is, there a, is there a potential? I mean, just a wild card, um, and we go into speculation that if we have some sort of no deal Brexit, given that it must do a lot of deals between uh, the Republic of Ireland and the UK, uh, we don't need to get to the stage of us all dying of uh, plagues of super gonorrhea and there being uh, uh, plagues of rats on the streets for there to be some disruption to its trade. Yeah, very much so. I mean, you might see a bit of a, a stockpiling of Richmond sausages in the lead up to that, but um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know whether uh, everyone's going to get fed up of those like <laughs> that. Um, and uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, given the context of the geographics of it, yeah, there is a, a significant risk. The other risk, I think, which is again underestimated in this, is that 13.6% of the shareholding 
rests with the Kerry Cooperative, the Creameries Cooperative, which is uh, essentially they went round in the mid 2000s buying up a load of farms off the farmers, giving them uh, shares in a cooperative and uh, that were matched to a number of shares in the Kerry Group. Um, at that time, this, the share price of Kerry was, I guess, in the the the, the single either well, between sort of ten to twenty euros a share, maybe a bit lower. Um, given the 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 rapid rise in the share price since then, all of these farmers are sat on paper profits of around 170 to 180,000 euros apiece. That's quite a lot for an Irish farmer, um, one would think. And the, the issue they have is that they can't sell the, the shares, the 13.6% in Kerry. They can only sell their shares in the cooperative. And it's a there's no liquidity in that market. So the best that they can probably hope for is for those shares to change hands at, say, uh, 50 pence or 50 cents in the euro. Um, and I think that there's increasing pressure that they want to they want to crystallise all this profit. And so somehow make them fungible and, uh, and therefore there's a 13% stock overhang. Yeah, potentially, yeah. Okay. Let's go to one more uh, stock, but uh, <coughs> before you go on back to your core business of destroying great British companies, um, Burford is the stock at the moment. Are you short? We are, yes, and looking to increase the short. Um, I mean, again, you know, talk about kind of fanatical shareholder base. Um, this is a company that I think... Is, Management, very promotional. Um, the valuation, we can't get our heads around. The, uh, certainly when it was north of £15 a share, um, even at this level, we still can't get our heads around. One of the biggest revelations, I think, with this was, was the, I mean, as helpful as it was and, and um, informative as it was with the, the Muddy Waters uh, dossier on it, I thought one of the biggest revelations was the statement that came out from um, IMF, Beth, uh, Bentham, the Australian listed peer, I think it was either a day after um, uh, or the same day, where they went to great lengths to say that, look, Whatever's going on with Burford, this is not how we account for our business. Our accounting is all cost-based, i.e. We, we book the cost of the litigation claims, funding the claims on our balance sheet um, at cost, and only when they are successful at court do we then realise the profits associated with that. We don't have this kind of marking up policy as the cases progress. That was indeed uh, a very telling. It's, it's accounting policies that are out of kilter with its peers. I, you know, it's very odd when, when you and I run private companies, Matt. And if uh, uh, if I would suggest to you that you should um, somehow book profits this year, uh, which are likely to fall due or may or may not fall due next year, uh, even though you won't get the cash until next year, so you can pay taxes in advance, you'd think I was bonkers. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, ultimately, you know, this thing, um, 
again, going back to IMF, you know, that trades on something like 0.9 times, or well, less than 0.9 times book, or 0.7 times next year on a book basis. Burford's is still, as of today, trading on about 1.2 uh, times book, um, which is why we still think there's there's some way to go. I mean, yeah, I mean, why are you paying tax in advance? I mean, the, obviously the reason being is that they can claim that they're, they're very successful at um, litigation funding. Uh, in order to drive the share price higher, the management can sell stock higher up, as they did last year, or I think it was last year. Um, and access to capital is far easier when you're trading on four times book versus when you're trading on 1.2 times and it's coming down. It's all right. The company says it's only raised equity once over the past five years. But having listened to a very informative lecture at uh, INSEAD a few years ago, uh, it's raised money in the bond markets, I think, four times. And uh, the bond markets are going to be greatly encouraged by the progress of the share price. It's that much easier to get a bond issue away if the shares are going through the roof. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, but also, I don't think that this type of business is particularly suitable to debt finance. Um, this is a point that I think um, that uh, Gotham have, have recently made in that the the profits of it and the cash associated, not the profits, because they they obviously have quite the way they account for them. The profits are, are uh, fairly consistent and growing. But the cash associated with the business, the cash inflows, are fairly lumpy because ultimately you're reliant on the success of, of these litigation claims, which have quite lengthy durations. And some years you might have no successful claims. Some years you might have a bonanza of, of claims. But also it's not just winning the claim, it's then actually getting the money. Uh, which exactly, can, uh, yeah. there's, there's the case of this uh, uh, yacht in Dubai. It's very hard <laughs> to actually get your winnings. Yeah, yeah, very much so. I, I mean, look, there's, there's, there's huge amounts of risk in it. I mean, the biggest irony of all this, I think, is that if you read their accounts, their own accounts, they go to, to emphasize, I forget which page it is, something like page 58, of the 2018 accounts, they they specifically highlight that they don't give forward guidance to sell-side analysts. The reason being is because it's profoundly difficult to forecast the outcome of all of these litigation cases. And yet, at the same time, every six months when they have to report earnings, a couple of days before, they're seemingly all huddled around the table, sticking their fingers up in the air, saying, well, what should we mark this at this month or, or today? Um, it's just it's bizarre. Of course, that doesn't stop the sell-side analysts being keen, enthusiastic supporters, which is nothing to do with the desire of their employee banks uh, to get the mandates for the next debt or equity offering. No, of course not. I mean, nothing encourages a, 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 a sell-side analyst more than um, than the prospect of uh, of a big, juicy capital raise. Um, that would be absurd, yeah. That's all helps to the Coke and Hookers Fund. Is, <laughs> in terms of um, uh, 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 Burford, things that could trip it up uh, going forward, obviously we have uh, the news which uh, uh, Share Profits has brought, the fact the FCA is looking at it. That, that could prove entertaining. Um, the 2013 accounts, I, I may sound like a bit of a pedant on this, but this is a critical issue, isn't it? Yes, very much so. I mean, again, that was a... 
a, a key point within the muddy um, dossier, which was that, and I think one of the main, most important features of it actually, which was not only was it uh, possibly providing a false representation of the success of the business and the profits that year or the returns that year, but also the circumstances around it, which is, I think, it was around the time they raised a fairly large retail bond. The bond um, was raised uh, uh, just a few weeks after the publication of the 2013 results. Yeah, very much. Yeah, okay. So then if, obviously, everyone's on the impression that 2013 was a stellar year for the company when the reality of the situation may have been different, um, that, that, that's not too good. That doesn't reflect too well. What is what is very telling about this, it's all to do with the NAPO case, is that Bert, we have now found in SEC trawlings, we've gone through it, we, uh, share profits actually did a little bit of this, um, uh, we found the two cases it fought and Muddy identified that they lost the first one, we have found the other one and they lost that one too. And the company could easily, uh, uh, you know, put a, a cork in our, in our, our guns here by naming the case that NAPO won, but it chooses not to. Its silence to me is ominous. Yeah. Um, Notwithstanding the fact that NAPO didn't have any money to pay them, that's the other issue. An auditor showing professional scepticism would have said, how can you book a profit of 15 million on this case uh, uh, when the client doesn't have two beans to rub together? Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of things that just really don't add up and a lot of things that people should think, well, this is a bit suspicious and there's a number of red flags here. I mean, also, obviously, the, the, the trail behind um, the individuals of the, the shareholder base um, and the, the, the institutions that were involved in that NAPO uh, case as well, where they were... Uh, effectively funding, I forget which name the company was, it Salix or something, um, in that. But, yeah, there's a lot of things that just don't add up. I mean, the corporate governance is pretty shocking as well. They're, they're the CEO shagging the finance director. I mean, okay, they are married, so we shouldn't probably hold it against them. And some married couples have sex, but uh, that, that that's not, not a good thing, is it? No, it's not. It's not really something that you'd look for in a what was a, a 3.6 billion market cap company, or even or even a company over a billion value company, or even a company over 100 million. Um, no, not. I mean, what was very weird was that the way that it was described. I think on the conference call, he described. He said, "Well, as it's as it's well known in the market, I am in a long-standing relationship with the CFO." I mean, if I described. Uh, my relationship with my wife to anyone as I'm in a long-standing relationship, then I'd probably be kicked to the curb quite quickly. <laughs> Why can't quite say I'm married to her? The other funny thing was that this, I think it was the COO went to Great Lakes to say, I, I'm not in any relationship with, with anyone. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> right. On that jovial note, uh, before we go into any more uh, details about your marriage, uh, thank you very much for your time. I must let you get back to destroying great British companies. We'll speak again soon. Okay, thanks, Tom. Cheers, mate. Well, thank you, Matthew L. That was most illuminating. You know, two things strike me about bears. We've had uh, quite a few of them uh, on Share Profits Radio. Uh, Sam Antar, he's not a short seller. But he used to be a fraudster, now a fraud buster. Uh, Lucian Myers has done a couple 
of appearances here. I've got a couple more lined up to come. I was talking to one just today, Gabrielle Grego, the man who brought down Globo, uh, Folly Folly, uh, and others. Uh, Gabrielle will be doing a uh, interview on Share Profits Radio within the next two or three weeks, and hopefully a couple of other big names from the world of shorting. Uh, the first thing that strikes me is just that bears do tend to be rather more intelligent than bulls. Uh, you have to be to survive as a bear for too long, because if you get a bear call wrong, you can lose vast amounts of money in a way that you can't lose if you get a bull call wrong. Your losses are capped at 100% of your money, and you'd be a bit of a clown if you lost the lot. Uh, if you're a bear, you can lose much, much more than that. I do remember my good friend Simon Corkwell, otherwise known as Evil Knievel. Uh, he lost three million quid on one trade a few years ago. That was on Regis. Uh, Evil would uh, argue to his dying day that his analysis was wrong. Uh, it's just that uh, the management conspired against him. The market conspired against him. But in the end, he had to fold his position and he lost three million quid. There was a time when uh, Evil was really on his uppers. He tells the story of one term uh, where he had his daughters at uh, Posh Public School. I think they went to, to rugby, the same school uh, that produced him. And it was the day before term began. And uh, he didn't have the money to pay the fees. He had a few quid. And he uh, put it on a horse, being a gambling sort of fellow. And uh, the horse was called uh, the Secretary of State, and uh, it won. And so he paid the fees, and he told the bursar of rugby school, the Secretary of State has paid the fees. He's a gambler. Uh, but he has sometimes been very well off. Sometimes Corky has almost been on his uppers. But he has survived as a short seller for 30 years, and he's doing reasonably well these days. <clears throat> to survive as a short seller, uh, you do have to be smarter uh, than your average punter. So those who've survived a long time, and Mattel, Lucien Myers, Gabrielle, uh, Corky, uh, Wasim Shakur, uh, and other folks uh, who may or may not appear on this podcast in due course, have all survived. If you're a bad short seller, you get cleaned out pretty quickly. So those who are around are smarter, are cleverer. Uh, than your average person. And when you talk to them, that becomes very apparent. One of the reasons I feel so happy talking to short sellers is not only that I'm instinctively bearish about everything, I always have been, it is my nature. And so I feel a sort of commonality of interest, but also they're just very interesting people. It's not just you talk to them about stocks and shares or about the market, you can talk to them about a whole range of issues, anything you want. And some of them know a lot about some things. Wazim Shakur is the world's greatest bore on the subject of Newcastle United Football Club. Uh, Lucien Myers, the world's greatest bore on the subject of West Ham United Football Club. Uh, Simon Corkwell thinks football is a game for plebs and refuses to talk about it. Although he would, of course, gamble on it. Uh, but they can talk about politics, the arts, literature, history, culture. They are interesting people.
but they are clever as well. And also, they do their homework. Because the odds are stacked against you, you have to do your homework. You can't just go in on a whim and short something. You will be cleaned out and your career will be over. So they do tend to do their homework far, far better uh, than the bulls of the short sellers. Uh, we always say in the, in the British uh, bear community uh, that Mattel is the one with the brains. If it, it seems to be a terribly complicated company, whereas you need to have the brains of Einstein uh, to unravel what it's up to at an accounting level. Mattel is the man for the job. He is the brains of the bear community. Okay, sometimes Quindell, uh, for instance, uh, others of us uh, get a look in and show that we're not complete dummies, but Matt is the smartest bear in town. Uh, the moral of this story, of course, is that you shouldn't argue with the bears. On Share Profits, we publish weekly uh, a table of the most shorted shares on AIM, and if you track it over time, you'll find that where the bears are hunting in packs, the bears are right. Uh, people like Neil Woodford often think that they knew better. Uh, therefore, they were prepared to take large positions when there was a large short position out there. Uh, they learned to their cost, or in the case of Neil Woodford, to his client's cost, uh, that that was not a smart move. Do not bet against the bears. Of course, one of the ironies of life is that the most overvalued stocks on AIM are ones that are not shorted. Uh, that is because they are amongst the small caps. In order for one to be able to short a stock, you need to be able to get borrow, which means effectively that you need to have institutional investors who are prepared to lend out their stock. Most of the companies on AIM do not have institutional investors or might have just one or two. There may not be any borrower and therefore it is impossible to short the stocks. Uh, that means that the bears, uh, knowing that they can't make any money, simply don't bother occasionally just out of interest uh, because the bears are a curious lot and uh, they have uh, intellectual curiosity and uh, they will investigate a stock where they can't go short just for the sheer hell of it, for the enjoyment, uh, and they will publish their results. But generally, the most overvalued stocks on AIM are ones where you can't short them and therefore uh, the bear community just have to leave them alone. That doesn't stop the CEOs of many of these tiddly little piece of shit companies from bleating that when their share price go down it's because wicked short sellers. But I'm afraid that's just one of the many lies told by the CEOs of such uh, uh, enterprises. Uh, well, share Profits, of course, as a website, will go after such companies. Uh, we're not doing it because we're short. We can't go short, not that I would personally. Uh, uh, we're doing it because our readers like to be warned uh, about scams and overpromotes so that they can sell their shares if they're unlucky enough uh, to own them, uh, or at least so that they aren't tempted into buying them as these companies promote aggressively uh, with paid-for interviews on Proactive and Edison and Vox Markets and that sort of thing, so that uh, they can be warned uh, that the companies are talking bullshit and that their shares are overvalued. Uh, that is something, a rather unique service that Share Profits provides. Uh, if you enjoy this Bearcast, if you hear this Share Profits radio, then perhaps you should listen to my daily Bearcast, which uh, goes out 
on share profits. It's one of 10 articles a day that appears on the website where we will warn you about all these situations. It costs just $5.99 a month to subscribe to Share Profits, and new readers are always welcome. Please do sign up because you'll get more of what you get in Share Profits Radio, uh, much, much more, uh, and you get it every single day. As I mentioned earlier, this podcast is free. Uh, hopefully, it's a platform to introduce many more of you to the fine work of Share Profits, uh, but it is something which is provided free, and we can do so only thanks to the kind sponsorship of various people who support our good work in fighting white-collar crime. Uh, today's sponsor are Turner Probe, a firm of city stockbrokers. Uh, as I said earlier, I've known the principals behind this firm, Ben and James, for many, many years. And uh, within the world of stockbroking, they strike me as uh, really rather decent fellows. Uh, some of their corporate clients are pretty piss poor. Uh, some of them are not so piss poor, and one or two of them have been rather good. Uh, they are open for business, but only if you are a professional investor. Don't ask me to tell you the difference between a professional and a non-professional investor. Uh, but if you don't know what it is, then I suspect you're not a professional if you are a professional investor and you'd like to avail yourself of the services of Turner Pope, uh, just drop them an email um, at info at turnerpope.com and please do tell them where you heard about them. Uh, that is to say, Share Profits Radio. Now, uh, for perhaps the small cap story of the week. My next guest is Steve O'Hara, who is the chief executive, I think he's the chief executive of Optibiotics, which, uh, despite uh, the shares having fallen rather sharply on the back of interim results, remains my largest holding, I must declare that. Um, Steve, I imagine results day has been rather brutal for you. It has been a, a, a difficult day, but you, know, you expect that on the, uh, on the market. You get your highs and you, you get the lows. And the key thing is to focus on the, the overall objective, which is to um, build the, the company into profitable business. Okay, I think the disappointment is that uh, it's all very well saying that your sales in the six months to thirty first of uh, six months to thirty first of May twenty nineteen were up dramatically on the first half of last year, uh, one hundred and forty eight versus eighty thousand. Um, but they were down sharply on the second half of last year, which which were 4.34 or something. Uh, people in growth stocks look, uh, you know, this sort of second half split doesn't really impress. They look for sequential growth. And, and so they sort of perceive you're in retreat. That's not the case. If you look at last year, um, we had a big difference between the first half of the year and the, the second half of the year. And that's the, the model that we have. It's a B2B model. It's not a, a direct-to-sales model where you get in revenue immediately. So you can't really compare the two halves of the year because you're not comparing like with like. So in the B2B model, um, we will get our uh, most of our royalty payments in the, um, the second half of the year because typically they're paid once or, or twice a year. Um, particularly in the first year of a, an agreement, they're paid out once a year. So historically, um, all our revenues, the majority of our revenues, have delivered in the second half of the, the, the year. And as I touched on earlier, 
last year's H2 was five and a half times that of um, H1. We expect the same thing this year because that's the nature of our model. Am I being stupid here? It's not because sort of people sign deals in the run-up to Christmas. Is it just a historic fluke that the anniversary and therefore the uh, uh, royalty payments are due in the second half? Um, No, you're not being stupid. It's a a difficult model to, because it's an unusual model to get across to um, to, to, to shareholders. Um, Clearly, I haven't achieved that. Otherwise, we wouldn't have a... A, um, a reduction in prices we've had on the basis of doubling sales on a like-for-like basis. Um, so the, the the issue is that our, our model is based upon um, selling by partners. So we don't sell directly our, ourselves. So we have a manufacturer who um, we signed a deal with in 2017 who produces the um, LPLDL. The same as the Symbiome, but I use LPLDL as an example. They then um, produce the, the, the ingredient, the probiotic. They then sell it to a, a formulator um, who then produces the, um, the formulation. They then sell it to a, um, a distributor who then sells it to a, a retailer. When all those are accumulated, then we tend to get the, um, the royalties, which are paid typically, as I say, in, a, in the first year of the, um, uh, of the agreement because the, the royalties tend to be reasonably um, small in the first year. They're paid once a year. In the second year, they're either paid um, quarterly or half yearly. So as we go forward, these peaks and troughs between the first and the second year will will iron out. And our focus has got to be on getting a a five to six times increase in our revenues in in the second half of this year, second half of 2019, the same as as, um, as 2018. That person obey comes to position. If you got a, uh, a five or six uh, 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 times uh, increase in revenues for the second half, uh, you'd be talking about, uh, well, my maths is rubbish, what, 148 times five is uh, uh, 750 to 900,000 revenue in the second half? Yeah, yeah. yeah that's what we're looking for. And we, th- we think that's realistic. And we think that's realistic for a number of reasons. Um, the first thing, and this is, well, this is known to investors, um, they've seen that Seed Health, who are one of our partners, um, they're launching products um, across the world. Initially, they launched in uh, in the US, and they're now launching products across the world. And you'll see advertising for them. You've seen advertisements in the um, in the Standard and um, and other newspapers over the last um, last week or so. And you've already had a big order uh, from them um, in the last month or so. Um, the second reason is that we've got a, a large corporate launch from one of our partners um, planned for early 2020, and they've already placed it. So this is a, a billion-dollar company, and they've already placed an order ready for the launch in, in, in 2020. And we also have a milestone payment, um, which um, should come through for LPLDL, because we've achieved the production of LPLDL as a biotherapeutic with our manufacturer. You now got that F, get that FDA accredited. Now we achieve a six-figure milestone. Um, then, as I indicated, um, on my six, six figures, Steve, is is a broad envelope. That could be yeah, hundred thousand and one yeah. penny or nine hundred ninety-nine thousand. Yeah, it's in the lower um, um, six figures. Um, so it's not um, in the nine hundred thousand. It's in the lower six figures. It's around about the hundred thousand mark. But that's a a big chunk of revenue to come in in the second half of the um, uh, of the year. We also, as I indicated, um, um, 
in my um, earlier commercial update, we have a, a retail launch plan for 2020. Um, one retailer has confirmed us as a supplier, and we have another retailer that we're looking to um, confirm in the next month or so. And these are looking for launches in the first half of of um, 2020. As a consequence of that, they'll be buying in the second half of 2019. And finally, we have uh, we had two big um, value increase in um, uh, regulatory uh, approvals last year. One was Slim Biomedical, which came through at the um, end of November of, um, of last year. And we only really um, had that available for sale in April of this year, so that the, the last half of this um, supporting period. And of course, grass approval in for LPRDL and dairy. Um, and um, that's a, a big uh, market. And we hope to have some news on LPRDL and dairy um, shortly. So now I'm, I'm confident um, that in the second half of the year, if we perform, as I'd hope we perform, we'll get a similar uplift in revenues in the second half of um, this year as we had in the second half of last year. You say as you hope you will perform. Um, uh, without bringing Cheryl Cole into this, uh, how uh, hopeful, uh, if you don't read share profits, you won't understand that reference, um, how hopeful are you? Bear in mind, we're actually almost halfway through this, the second half. Uh, is it sort of a hope, a prayer, a belief? Yeah, so I, I tried to indicate in my um, previous answer that you already got um, uh, orders from um, Seed Health um, which came in after after May. We already got an order from a large corporate um, that came in at the um, after May. We really got a, a milestone um, that we've achieved that we have to get um, regularly sign off on, and that's a six-figure milestone. So that's what makes me more than hopeful. That's what I expect to achieve this year, and that's the task that I I set my um, um, my team. So we've got a. a when I look at it, uh, I, I can understand the reaction in the, the share price, but people aren't familiar with the model. It does take time to transition from agreements into, into revenues. And it's frustrating when they don't become immediate. When I look at it, we have more deals. We have a stronger team with the appointment of Fred Narble and the appointment of Steve Prescott and better partners now um, than we had when the SP was 130. And um, uh, I've done this a number of times um, over the over the years, and we're just in that, that period where we start the commercialization process. People can see traction because we've got commercial agreements, but can't see that conversion into into revenues. And when we you, you see that happening, and you'll see that in the second half of this year, and as we go forward, people will really start buying into the company. As already indicated, just looking today, people are taking the most of the opportunity, and we've got some big um, share purchases today of 15k, um, 51 pence, and um, 49k. So people you know, believe in the opportunity, and they're um, and they're still investing the opportunity. And the key for me and my team is we have to deliver on that. Okay, we'll we'll ignore the share price and buys and sells if you don't mind for a second. Sure. Um, you talk about how you've got greater commercial traction, and I in the uh, release you talk about forty-four agreements. When was the first of those forty-four agreements signed? Yeah, so let me just go through these. One of the earliest agreements, and you'll understand that the model was SACO in um, March of um, of two thousand seventeen. Prior to that, we had a development agreement with, um, with, with Tata Chemicals that 
took us a, a long time to um, to announce. But if you take the model, Sacco are the manufacturers of the probiotics, so they make it in big fermenters. Then later on that um, that spring, early summer, we had an agreement with Neutralinia. So they take um, the the probiotic and they put it then into a, a capsule. And they have two capsules. One is a single capsule, and one is a a, um, a triple layer tablet. And that was agreement was signed in the in the summer. And then subsequent to that, we had a couple of smaller deals with um, companies like um, Biopharma, um, HLH in, in Germany. And subsequent, as you realise, we they've come back and they they've had some good sales in Germany, and they and. We've, accept, we've changed their non-exclusive agreement to exclusive agreement on the basis that they expect to double revenues every year for the next three years. And then you have later on in the year, Glenicum, who start to sell probiotics in the um, middle of 2018. So you can see you have the manufacturing, going back to what I said earlier, the manufacturers initially we signed the deals with. And six months later, we'll, find, we'll sign the formulation deals with the partners. They'll then produce a, a, a formulation for a um, distributor. And so that normally takes six to nine months. And you get the distributor deals who take it on board and start selling to retailers. So typically, there's a, a 12 to 18-month delay between when we sign deals and when we start to get in revenues. And then hopefully, as we've seen with a number of our products, as they start to sell um, the, the products, they get the reviews back and just got to look on our website, the reviews for Cold Biome X3 and Cold Biome and Stem Biome and Go Figure, and people start to buy into it and the sales grow. So it, it's a it's a long process and a painful process. And I do appreciate investors that have stuck with us during this period of time. But it's a it's a well-followed path from my point of view. And the key thing, as I said earlier, is making sure that we 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 now focus um, not so much on agreements, although they will still have lots of agreements, but making sure the agreements in place, currently in place, deliver on their um, on what the, the partners have forecast. Uh, so are we saying that uh, uh, deals which were signed 18 months ago or possibly even two years ago are only now starting to generate their first revenues? And going forward, you obviously you hope that those revenues increase dramatically. So deals which were signed only a year ago we shouldn't really be expecting anything until this time next year. Um, it depends on the partner, but typically 12 to 18 months is a, is a, is a good time. Um, if I give some other examples, um, which are probably um, how it changes, um, so this is the other end of the extreme. So what I'm trying to explain to you is you have to build up your supply chain. So your manufacturers, your formulators, and your um, and your distributors. And until you get those in place, which has taken us 18 months, you don't get the deal, the, the revenues coming through. Once those are in place, and I'll give you a good example here. So we signed a deal with um, Extensor on the 22nd of the 5th this year, and they immediately, they're a Polish company, and they immediately paid us a, um, a, um, an income of around £25,000 for the for product. So because the supply chain is in place within Europe, um, the time scale to get revenues in place now is a is a lot shorter. Now that supply chain isn't complete yet in, in the US and is not complete in, in, in Asia, um, but that's what we're trying to do. So we'll get the supply chain completed in Europe and those coming through, we and, and they'll become more immediate. We will get um, the US supply chain and Agripur, the slim buying was the, the first of those. Um, and they'll be um, presenting the supply chain, uh, supply side west 
in, um, um, in um, October of this year and looking to get in partners to, to, um, um, to, to buy products. Uh, and then as we go into Asia, we've already got manufacturers in Asia, but then what we need in Asia now are the distributors and the retailers, and we're hoping to, to close those out for, for the next couple of months. So that's the way it works. And um, just as, a, as an aside, just to, to help people, um, and just as a sort of strategic movement, we've actually started to move a little bit more into, um, into consumer direct sales, and so, for example, as part of the increase in sales um, between H1 last year and this year, our online sales are more than double, they doubled um, 2.2 times. And we hope to see that doubling also increase um, throughout this year and into, the, um, into next year. Your online sales in the first half were, from memory, 65,000? Um, from online sales, I think we're around about that. Yeah, 65,000, 64,374, yeah. Okay, sixty-five thousand. I am genius. So I am. Um, so sixty-five thousand. That's you know, roughly speaking, uh, five and a half grand. Uh, uh, is that no? No, it's just, it's more than that. It's eleven grand a month. Uh, and you're seriously expecting that to double again over the next year? Yeah, uh, I, I. In fact, I think it will more than double if the buy energizer deal comes to fruition. So the task I set our online platform. Remember, this is shop window was to. Um, to generate sales at 10K per month. They've achieved that. The second task I've, sent, uh, I've set them is to generate sales at 20K per month. Uh, with the Buy Energizer deal, so this is and our retail deals, we've taken a decision to move slightly away from our initial model, which was a B2B model, which takes time to, to generate, but you get a, a far greater margin to um, to more direct to consumer sales and build up our consumer health division. And that has two components with it. One is online sales, not just our, our own online sales, but online sales with groups like Bioenergizer with marketeers and retail sales. And I'll be very, very surprised if those are not just £20,000 per month, but hopefully £30,000, £40,000, £50,000 per month as we go into um, 2020. Okay. So that, 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 does that include the deals with the retailers or it's just the online? Oh, that's just the online. The, the, okay. the what, sort of margin, what sort of margin will you get from the online business? Gross. Um, I need to have a quick look at that. Um, let me just have a quick calculation. It's about a 40% margin with the, um, with the, on, with the um, online. Our own online is about between 85 and 95% depending on the, on the product. With the retailers, it will be around about um, 20% um, margin. Okay, so from your own online, what are you expecting the sales to be? Uh, ignoring other retailers, your own online sales, what do you expect them to be in a year's time? Well, in a year's time, I expect them between 20 and £30,000 our own online. Okay, and that and that is on the uh, that that much higher margin you indicated. Now, can we just return to the uh, rest of this financial year? Sure. If you are correct <coughs> in your assumptions, overall revenue in this year will be round about a million quid. Yeah. Now I always say that your cost base is a hundred thousand a month, and you always say that. Uh, but people look at the uh, results today and they see that your costs were about uh, 1.2 million in the first half. Uh, where, where, are, where are they getting it wrong or I getting it wrong or you getting it wrong? Yeah, I, I wish I was a, a better accountant than I, than I am, but we tried to well, break so it down. I might help you. 
I think there were a million in the first half. About a quarter of that is your equity share of the losses of skin biotherapeutic, yeah. which is a non-cash item. Yeah. And then if you knock off amortization and share-based payments, uh, you knock off another 140,000. Yeah. And that gets us back to 600,000 as a cash cost yeah. for the half year. Yeah, that's as I presented in the um, in the account. So um, that's the uh, we I work on a month for month basis in terms of looking what we bring in and what we take out. Uh, as in, look at the accounts as you just described and as it's presented in the um, in the accounts. Uh, that 1.25 million. That's not all cash coming out of it. It's, 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 so in terms of profit, that's one thing, but cash, because I think there are some people, no doubt uh, my good friend Cynical Bear, suggesting that you're about to do an emergency placement. Uh, uh, let's get it straight. In the first half, with your, uh, your costs for 100000 a month, if you were to achieve second half revenues of 900000 would that generate enough gross profit to cover your costs? Your, your yeah. cash costs. Yeah, our, our, our focus, so raising money is relatively easy. Now, you have to raise money to create value. We did a raise last year because we were close to a, a retail deal. It took longer than we, we expected, but well, we got there in the end. We also raised money because we had the, the biotherapeutic agreement and we need to pay for the manufacturing of, of, um, of um, um, LPLDL as a biotherapeutic. That in itself gave us um, milestone payments and more milestone payments this year. So we don't have any plans to um, to raise um, to raise funds. And instantly, what you, you have to be careful of with a with a business is raising funds is an easy option. Um, our focus has to be on building a business and ensuring that our partners deliver on their revenue forecast and we deliver on creating revenues for the business so that we become a profitable business. And that's the task I've set. Now, remember how we structured the business? We've got a number of divisions, and each of those divisions now are led by you know, really strong individuals. Steve Prescott and Fred Narwell, they've been set the task of making their division profitable, okay? And that's what we've got to focus on, not really. Is, um, is that why Fred Narwell got promoted and uh, a young lady whose name I forget um, uh, has left the company? Yeah, so, so Fred be brought in in March of um, of uh, this year. You can really see he made a, a big difference with the Agripur deal. Fred, uh, Steve joined him later. I think it was Mar uh, May or, or, or June for the probiotic division. And so these are individuals who have the the gravitas uh, and the commercial ability um, for the next phase of the the company's development. The first phase was opening doors and. Her and Christina were really good at opening doors and striking deals. The next phase is you need some with a bit more gravitas. You need a, a people who've got experience of having those difficult discussions across the, the table saying, look, guys, you told us you'll deliver a million pounds this year. You're behind on those particular um, um, levels. What's your plans to change that to get back up to what you um, you forecast? Because if you don't, guys, we're going to go with somebody else or we're going to go, um, um, well, you can lose exclusivity. So that's the sort of person we, we, we need now for the next phase of the organisation. And that's why Fred's in board and that's why we made the changes within the company. Uh, you have to be, go, go, sorry, Tom, go ahead. Uh, OK, I'm, I'm, I'm glad the changes are positive. What I would just rewind to is you said raising money is easy. Um, 
Uh, it wouldn't be easy because I'd be coming along and uh, decking you if you did it at the <laughs> moment. Uh, uh, and I'm sure I wouldn't be the only one. Um, I want to just get this, nail this. Uh, at the end of the first half, you had cash of 984000 You had some tax due. So let's call it cash and cash equivalents of $1.24 million. Yeah. If your cash costs in H2 are going to be 600000 you could afford to do revenue of zero uh, for... 12 months and you still wouldn't be completely bankrupt. Uh, absolutely, but that, that's not... But that's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. Did, if, if you did revenue of 900,000 in the second half, would there be sufficient gross margin to generate a, pro, a gross profit of 600,000? Well, we, well, we, uh, so in terms of 900,000 across the, the full year, we'll be covering our costs in the second half of the year because to achieve that will be 600,000, so it will be more or less a thousand pounds per month, or just slightly over, over that. And don't forget, we dispose of a quarter million pound worth of sales um, just a, um, a couple of weeks or so ago, with no impact at all on the, um, the skincare price. So with a 1.24 yeah, well, million... I think there's been a bit of an impact today when it's been disclosed that you sold those skin biotherapeutic shares. Uh, I think that's an impact due to the um, drop in the optibiotics um, um, share price and having, well, we don't know what it's due to, but... Is, is, I, is it, do you not consider it's possible that the skin biotherapeutic share price has gone down because people are now perceiving that Opti will use it as a piggy bank, uh, selling shares into any strength? Um, I think that's possible the share price has gone down in that, but what we've always said... If I take the example one we sold shares, it had no impact on that particular day's tra um, um, trading. So we sold it as blocks to um, to institutions and, um, and and high net worths. And we don't. We've always said this that the the idea behind skin is that you know, we bought it for a quarter million, put it in four fifty, put it on the market between ten and eleven million. It's got to uh, twenty twenty three million. We think there's substantive value within skin. And as the deals come through, which I'm sure they'll, they, they, they will, um, based on the, the noise I'm hearing in the in the market, um, I think the share price will rise. And I think at that time, we'll look at maybe selling some um, some more shares. And then as a consequence of that, giving the dividend back to our shareholders. We've said that for the last 18 so, years. I, I understand. That. Are you saying, therefore, that there is the market is right? There is a danger that into any strength in the skin biotherapeutic share price, there is a seller, you. Um, if we if we sell, we'll sell it in a structured way. We've always said that, um, so that says that we um, we don't um, damage the the skin share price. As I said we we sold a quarter million um, a couple of weeks or so ago, and the market. Okay, so this is not the announcement. The market in terms of selling those those, those shares because we sold it as a block to institutions and high net worth. There was no impact on the share price on that particular day. So as we go forward, um, depending on, on what happens with, with skin, if they get a number of commercial deals um, and we feel it's an opportunity to um, leverage value uplift from, from skin, we may take some money off the table if it's needed to invest in, in, in antibiotics. But why would it be needed? Uh, sorry, Steve, I'm going to push you on this point. Yeah, sure. Why would it be needed to invest in antibiotics? On your maths, you will generate positive cash. Not maybe not a lot, but a little bit of positive cash in the second half. Yeah. So your cash position will be growing. Now, we're going to come to next year and the year after. But uh, uh, suffice to say, you predict growing profitability. 
And that, with zero capex in the business, should mean increasing cash generation. Why would Optibartics need to take that ca- to need any more cash? Yeah, so that, well, there's two things. One, we would need it, but we've always said we'd look at giving a dividend to shareholders. That's partly for the reason. But go back to what I did with, with Skin. Um, the Skin, the opportunity arose to uh, identify something that had um, relatively low value in terms of where it was positioned at the time, where I took it in for a, a quarter of a million, added um, 450, 400 um, to it, and then leveraged that to create a 10 million, 20 million company. If I see a similar opportunity whereby I can um, add value to Optivartics by um, opening up um, supply chains, by opening up other opportunities to the market, then if that opportunity arises, I may take some money off the table to um, to achieve that. But again, our focus is very much on um, taking the deals we have and converting those deals into revenue to become a profitable business going forward. The option for Skin, now I'm being open here, is always been on the table and remain on the table. Okay, now let's turn to the revenues. In the statement, you referred to deals with one retailer. I gather there are, in fact, two potential deals. Um, Are they done deals? So let me go through through those. Um, in terms of the, the retailer, you don't have an agreement with a, a retailer where you have a set amount of, of um, product that they, uh, they sign up to each particular year. You, you sign a, um, a supplier agreement, which we've done, and you have to go through a process of going through various audits. So these are quite interesting audits. There are things like sustainability audits, um, uh, they are audits of your of your suppliers, which we're, we're going through, um, and they've given an indication in terms of the volumes of product that they will sell. The one one retailer we, we have is giving us a, a good indication in terms of when they intend to launch, which which is in early part of 2020, um, and the other retailer is an earlier stage in terms of the, the discussions, but they've indicated they want to take. Slim Biome as an ingredient and incorporate it into a range of their products. So those are the, the two retailers. One is further down the line and has given us a, a launch date and has given us the, the range of products that they want, a number of those products. Um, the other has given indication in terms of the volume of Slim Biome that they, um, and they want, but we haven't signed a supply agreement with them at this moment in time. Um, so we have two. Why can't you announce the first supply agreement? Why can't um, you announce the first supply agreement now? Do it um, on Share Profits Radio. We, we'd love to we'd love to break the news. Yeah, if I do that, I think I would, you know, you know my views over confidentiality and I don't like to hide behind it. Um, but I, I like to be fair to our partners because the best way of damaging a relationship with a partner is to disclose confidential information um, about a, um, a partner. But sooner or later, you're going to have to announce it, aren't yeah, you? Yeah, so, so what will happen is that as we come to the, the launch date and um, we will announce the, the retailer and that will then we'll use um, the retailer's um, PR and we use our own um, um, PR to really create interest in this um, um, in, the, in this area. So we have the combination of the retailer's PR and our own PR, which will create interest and excitement in, in driving football to the, um, um, to the retailer. Because the retailer's view of this is that uh, they're not our partner as such, they're selling shelf space to us and we're paying for shelf space um, on their um, on their shelves, and what they expect from from that is sales of our product, 
and also expect an increase in footfall. So that's the the, the crudity in terms of um, retail deals. And when you say things, paying effectively, you're paying in terms of sacrifice margin. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and it's quite a big sacrifice, quite quite frankly. And so okay, the key, okay, let's, Let's, let's take Retailer One, the one where we hope for launch early in uh, uh, 2020. Uh, what sort of sales do you hope to achieve? Oh, um, I need to be careful here in terms of giving um, forecasts um, because I know working with, with retailers, it can it can change quickly. So we'd, we'd love to have somewhere between, with, this, with that retailer, between one and, 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 and three, three million, okay? Maybe as high as five million. Um, let's just work through exactly what they, they, that they choose and the volumes they've given us, indicative volumes for us to produce the, the ingredients. So in that, um, in that category, but of that, you know, as I say, you're talking about 20% margin for us. So you, the uh, impact on gross profits could be 200,000 or it could be a million. Yeah. Over a year, yeah. retailer two. What could that add to the mix on a similar margin? Um, that uh, I think will be um, a slightly higher margin from our discussions. That looks around about twenty-five percent margin, but I think that'd be more likely between um, three to five million. I think that uh, I'd say so. It's a less secure deal, right? But that could be three to five million. Okay, so retailer one is gross profits, which which looks to be pretty certain, unless you, you foul up somewhere along the line. That's gross profit boost of two hundred thousand to a million. Retailer two, if it comes across the line, and it will be slightly later next year, uh, gross profits of oh, cripes, I can't do the maths. Uh, Six hundred and twenty-five thousand to one point two five million. Somewhere in that region, yeah. Somewhere, I think it's very much somewhere in that region on that first number. Okay, so those the retailers. Ignoring the retail side for a second, just go back to the business as is. If we're looking for sales of a million quid this year, what sort of sales might we be looking for next year, which is, after all, only um, three months and a week away? Yeah, so, you know, I, I'm so loath to give forecasts because and there's a reason for that, because our model is predicated on others delivering to their, their forecast and we need to build a trade in history. We will produce a forecast this year because I think we're now we're getting to a position, particularly with our, our new brokers that were in a, a strong position and better um, analysis in terms of where, where we are. But in terms of an indication where we'd hope to be in the next few few years, we think this year we'd, we'd hope to be around about a million. Um, next year would look to um, three to five million. Um, and this could be higher depending on the how the retail deals develop. I've added a whole bunch of caveats on, on them. In 2020, what we'd be looking for is between somewhere between seven and um, and ten million. And so you can see how when the supply when the balance this is, phase, a remote, this is of sales, isn't it? Yeah, these are sales. Okay. So sorry, so next year is actually financial year 2020, you're looking three to five million. Yeah. Of that, what percentage is going to be retail? Uh, I, I don't want to break these down because I've, I indicated to you um, in terms of the three to five million, I, I think will achieve that probably without the retailer. Um, the retailer tends to be bivalent um, deals. They either get them or not. Uh, and until they're buying from us and then they're in the, in the shops, 
I came with this gown. I put a little bit inside there in terms of that's why there's um, some um, some sort of variation I've given a, a, a range, three to five million. Um, so I would like to give a figure in terms of 20% retailer. So, so, so that three to five million forecast for next year, and it sounds to me like you're discounting the retailer yeah. back quite a lot. Yeah. The majority of that is what we might say is the core business. Yeah, you have to, because as I said, you know, retailers can sometimes not deliver on what they what they um, say. And more importantly, you can have them, you can have um, product in their shop for six months, it doesn't sell, and they take it out um, for, for no, no, no problems with the product itself. And the key thing we're trying to do here, just to make, make everyone aware, is trying to link the retail deal with the increased marketing from Bioenergizer, who will be doing... Um, um, TV advertising and um, so newspaper and TV advertising to increase um, knowledge and awareness of of products and drive football to the the supermarket so it's not just about getting in the supermarket it's retaining it's building up sales in the supermarket and retaining a position in the supermarket but the the Go ahead, so, okay, I, I take that on board. So just going back to the numbers, and I'm sorry for being such a pedant, but you know me long enough to know that's my mm-hmm. game. Uh, what you seem to be indicating is that if it was three million, the vast majority of that would be the core business, i.e. much higher margin. If it was five million, then the incremental couple of million sales would be the lower margin retail stuff. Yeah, I think that's a fair assessment. Okay, so if you did three million, uh, whilst you would be recording on my rough maths, uh, a close to seven figure profit, if it's five million, it may only add 50% to that. Yeah. Okay, so that's, that's the year which starts in three months and a week's time. The year after, you're talking about seven to 10 million of sales. Uh, how much of that is, factor, is, is retail? Look, as you go beyond um, the next 12, 12 months, it becomes diff- difficult to to factor in um, the percentage of each of the um, uh, each of the components. What I look at is um, you know, what the contribution from um, LPLDL, so this is our probiotic, um, slim biome, um, sweet biotics, which will come online next next year, and LP Gosp to come on next year, um, and then um, look at all those as a whole, and um, look at the potential for retail sales and discount that according to risk. That's what I try, try to do, um, and that will be um, somewhere in in the um, in the region in 2027, 10 million. The exact portion of that will depend on the contribution for each of those and how successful we are. Okay, uh, and going forward, the year after that is the year when uh, uh, you famously forecast that the company would not do sales of seven to ten million. But profits of seven to ten million. Do you stand by that? So I think you called me on that one and um, and said it in terms of um, the the seven million um, profit. Um, I think if things continue as we'd hope to continue, what we're looking for that particular period is sales of between fifteen and twenty million. Again, as the the further you go out, the the wider the variance. And on that, we'll get around about a, a seven million. 7.3 million for my calculations um, profit. At what stage, uh, assuming that I mean, if we would take a nightmare scenario, the shares are stay exactly where they are, um, uh, at what stage do you think that uh, you go to a private equity firm and say, I'm going private? 
I've got no plans for that. Um, I haven't even crossed my, my mind, if I'm, if I'm honest. Um, I think the biggest challenge we all, we all have going forward, particularly with the, um, the, the challenge with the, the pound, is that we'll become increasingly attractive to um, buyers from within Europe. And um, you're, you're already aware that I strategically I recognised this back earlier in the year and I've moved to um, employ ghost partners. Uh, so the next month or, or so, I'm out in, in Europe. I've got a number of meetings the next couple of weeks too um, with um, um, investors in, um, in Germany, Switzerland, the Nordic countries um, and the Netherlands um, to, to, to create interest in Optive Arctics um, from European investors, particularly in the family funds. Um, as we go out and we have um, we meet with partners and the partners seal the revenues building um, and they'll take a slightly different view from um, from from investors. They'll see growth between the uh, um, between comparing hedge fund this year to, to last year and they'll see the the sizable deals coming through. I think there'll be um, uh, approaches from. Um, uh, industry to um, acquire the company. Sorry, can we float back on Goats Partners? I, I, I know um, we slightly disagree on this because my only uh, previous encounter with them was not one that covered them with glory. Uh, their skill set, as I understand this, is introducing uh, uh, companies to family offices and European investors. Uh, have you met any of them so far? Yeah. Do you indicate that, is there any indication that we're going to start seeing some share buying by them? So I met them, uh, let's have a look, a week or so ago, and there's some interest there. Um, I, uh, I'm meeting, as I indicated earlier, uh, I'm in Switzerland, Germany, um, Nordic countries, Netherlands over the next three weeks. Um, and then we'll have a good view in terms of level of interest and um, the um, uh, how much the interest they've got and how much they convert that interest into um, um share into purchases. Yeah. But just to just to just to, in case Cynical Bear is still listening, this is not a roadshow for a placing. This is a simply to try and attract institutions to the shareholder list. Yeah, that was the task I set um FinCap back a couple of years or so ago to introduce institutional investors. And in the, the UK market, we haven't achieved that, um, partly because there's so much of a benefit for, from EIS and, and, and BCT. So you have to then look elsewhere. And we think GOATS have, have a, a wide network of um, family um, um, trusts um, uh, who they can introduce us to and, um, uh, in, and, and banks, who, who um, European banks, that will be interested in a company like ours. Okay, so uh, some people may also say it's because FinCap are a shit broker, but I, I know you wouldn't say that but, and wouldn't possibly comment. But um, uh, so you think that should get some traction for the share price going forward? Yeah. So uh, in terms of uh, investors, you might feel a little bit bruised today, including myself. Uh, going forward over the next six months, we had a little bit of boardroom buying. I would very much hope there'll be more, including yourself, Steve. Uh, what, what else can we look forward to? The announcement of the retailer, perhaps, uh, and maybe a, a positive year-end trading update in November? Uh, yeah, I, I think we've got lots of things to be um, positive on go, going forward. Um, I've already indicated a, a couple of things that are um, uh, we're working on. Um, but again, the, the focus of my team and the reason I, I, I evolved my team has got to be on 
converting those agreements into into revenues. And um, we have to continue to do that, and we have to do that against a a, a continued low cost base. Um, so that's the that's that's the focus. Um, everything else, um, quite frankly, is is secondary. Okay, one secondary thing: Do we think that Goats Partners um, are? I mean, you you've uh, uh, come up with some revenue forecasts. I'm sure uh, that listeners uh, to this uh, uh, podcast would be smart enough to convert that into profits forecasts. Uh, do you think uh, Goats Partners are likely to initiate coverage with a decent research notice today? Yeah. Okay. All right. That was very simple. <laughs> Thank you very much for your time. Uh, I hope I haven't missed out anything. Uh, we will speak again uh, fairly soon. Uh, yeah, yeah, I don't miss out anything at all. I think we covered quite a lot. But thank you very much, Tom, for the interview. All right. Au revoir and all support. that. Speak to you soon. Thanks. Bye now. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Steve O'Hara of Optibotics. I certainly found myself reassured on many counts. Uh, I am a big shareholder. I bought most of my shares at 8p, so I'm well in the money. Uh, I bought others at prices of anything up to 55p, so I guess I'm in the money on all of the shares. You know, I bought a couple in the 70s, uh, but the weighted blended in price for me is about 9 or 10p. I'm well in the money. It is my largest single holding, and I can uh, plan to be holding uh, for quite some time because I believe the shares are fundamentally cheap. I can still see a case uh, for why the shares should be £1.50, uh, £1.82, uh, not by Christmas, certainly not by Christmas, uh, but within a couple of years. Uh, when you're talking about those profits of 7 to 10 million being one year out. So I guess we're talking about the year uh, to November 2022. So by November 21, or the middle of 21, which is only 18 months away, I can see the shares being at those levels. Uh, to understand that, just think about those numbers, think about those profits, and think about what sort of multiple uh, a company delivering those sort of profits would be trading on a fast-growing cash-generative company. Uh, I did, however, disagree with Steve O'Hara on one point in that uh, podcast. I think perhaps you guess what, and that is to do with his company's shareholding in Skin Biotherapeutics. Uh, clearly, this has been a great investment for O'Hara. Uh, they put something like 600000 into the business. Uh, they've netted uh, 250000 from share sales, and they still have shares worth $5.5 So he's done very well out of it. But I think his strategy for dealing with those shares is wrong, and I've told him so, and I've let other people know, and I'll explain to you why I think it's wrong. In the podcast, Steve seemed to imply that he believed skin biotherapeutics would have a lot of good news and that would drive the shares up. But at that point, into any strength, Optibiotics uh, would be a seller of more shares. If it sold half a million quid's worth of shares or a million quid's worth of shares, that would be the sort of cash which it could use uh, for dividend payments going forward to its own shareholders. That, to me, seems a mistake. You're signalling to the market uh, that if the shares go up, you're going to sell some. On that basis, why would I be rushing to buy the shares now? There clearly seems to be a stock overhang seems to me that there is a far better use for these skin biotherapeutic shares. And here is what I would do if I was O'Hara. 
I would say we have five and a half million quid's worth of shares at the current share price, and we believe the shares will go up. So what we're going to do is we are going to uh, sell uh, maybe another half a million quid's worth of shares for cash at some stage. And we will announce that our intention is to sell uh, however many shares would be half a million quid's worth at the current level. But it's something that we plan to do on a six uh, to nine month basis. And there is no rush. There clearly is no rush. Optibiotics simply does not need any more cash. It should be cash generative in the second half. The cash position, maybe one and a half million today, assuming those tax credits have come through, is likely uh, to be at least one and a half million by the year end and is going to grow thereafter. So Opti doesn't need any more cash. But we use take a half a million in uh, just to make the balance sheet look a little bit stronger uh, and to reassure uh, any doubters out there about the strength of the balance sheet. That would still leave uh, uh, Optibiotics holding uh, 5 million quid's worth of shares, which would be about 35% of the equity. What it should then announce, and it should announce this soon, I suggest, is that it plans to dividend out 3 million quid's worth of its shares to its own shareholders, to Optibiotics shareholders. Uh, It says, we will pay this out as a special dividend. And the ex-dividend date is going to be, shall we say, Christmas Day. Uh, And we will make the payment in the first half of 2020. If it were to make that announcement tomorrow, uh, then anyone who held the shares uh, would be thinking very hard about why they would sell them. Uh, because if there's a three million dividend coming for a company which is capitalized at 45 million, well, that's a yield of 6%, whatever the maths are. If it's capitalized at 50 million, it's a yield of 6%. Uh, that would be a very good reason to hold Optibotic shares. And I can think of many more reasons. And the main reason is you're going to make a big capital gain. But it would certainly uh, make anyone who was thinking about selling uh, think long and hard about it, think twice. They wouldn't sell. And indeed, it would be a very good reason to buy the shares. If the shares aren't actually going to be dividended out until sometime in 2020, that would not be a depressant on the share price. Uh, Indeed, uh, I think the share price, if it could clear that half a million sale, which Opti was going to do at some stage, uh, would be able to motor ahead until then. Would Optibiotic shareholders getting this dividend dump their stock automatically? I suspect many wouldn't. Uh, The reality is that it probably wouldn't be that large a sum for many people. Would it really be worth doing it? I think I personally would view it as a free gift. And I would say thank you very much. I'll stick it in the bottom drawer and see what happens. So I don't think that the actual dividing out process would necessarily hit the skin biotherapeutic share price when it happened. But certainly it would mean that the optibiotic shareholder list would be far tighter in the run up to the ex-dividend date uh, on Christmas Day. Very few people would be selling. Why sell a stock with capital growth potential, spectacular capital growth potential, and which is uh, yielding six uh, on a prospective yield of 6%? Indeed, I think it would bring in buyers, people keen to get their free skin biotherapeutic shares. What do you do with the remaining 2 million? You hold them. Uh, Steve O'Hara seems to think that skin is a great long-term investment. Well, hold them and see what happens. There is an added advantage to doing that, by the way, and that is that if the holding went down uh, to just two million quid's worth of shares, Optibiotics' percentage holding in skin biotherapeutics would be below 
At that point, it doesn't need to equity account for the skin bio, its share of skin biotherapeutics losses. In the first half, uh, it took a £267,000 uh, uh, loss, it being 37% of skin biotherapeutics losses on that period through its own P&L. It's a non-cash item. It doesn't affect its cash burn at all. Nonetheless, it allows innumerable fools uh, to believe uh, that Opti's cash burn is far greater uh, than it really is because they simply look at the P&L. It would clear up that confusion. So, from a presentational point of view, it would make Opti's numbers look a lot cleaner. Uh, it would tighten up the shareholder list. And above all, it would go to the principle that actually the owners of those skin biotherapeutic shares isn't Steve O'Hara, isn't really Optibotic PLC. It's all of us. It's the long-term it's the, uh, the long supportive shareholders in Optibotics. There are shares. We own them. And therefore, it is right that a good portion of them are distributed back to we, the shareholders, as a dividend. Optibotics isn't going to do anything more with them. So why not go with my plan? It is something that I have suggested to O'Hara and to other advisors to the company and something I'll continue to push him on. I think for the skin biotherapeutic share price, it would be far better. And for the optibiotic share price, it would also be far better. And uh, I think it would be right uh, that the this asset is distributed in a good way back to we supportive optibiotic shareholders. Anyhow, we'll see whether Steve O'Hara takes up my suggestion or not. Uh, usually I'm ignored, but occasionally people think I'm talking sense. It doesn't detract. I mean, it's a relatively minor issue. It doesn't, for me, detract from the key story of optibiotics. Uh, time will tell whether my assessment, and that of Steve O'Hara, is correct. Uh, but the boardroom buying suggests, which is material in the context of the salaries of the people on the board, uh, does to me uh, suggest, uh, this boardroom buying has happened over, over many years, uh, that the board is not spoofing and is serious in its belief that these shares are cheap. O'Hara has a track record of delivering value, not only at Optibiotics, but at other enterprises before that. And you always back good management. If you've enjoyed this edition of Share Profits Radio, as I hope you have, uh, then hopefully you'll tune in next week. It helps me. Uh, it uh, helps make this more of a commercial enterprise. If you can register with iTunes and get it automatically downloaded to your phone, I hope you're all doing that. Uh, and if you can't wait seven weeks for the next edition of Share Profits Radio, why not splash out $5.99 a month and join Share Profits, where you can listen to my Bearcast every single day of the week. Uh, more from me uh, and Bearcast uh, tomorrow, and I'll be back with another edition of this fine radio show in a week's time. Speak to you then. Man of Aleph, stop your dreaming. Can't you see the spear points gleaming?